Gen X Playback, episode number five. And welcome back to Gen X Playback, our look back to our favorite decades of our lives, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I'm Scott. And I am Sean. And we welcome you to our, oh, we would like to say our broad range of topics that we like to cover in uh, in the period time period that, that we want to discuss on this show. So we have discussed everything from movies to television to sports to actors. And this week, we're going to talk about a cultural phenomenon, something that took over and dominated much of the mid to late 70s. And we're going to talk about disco music. Now, disco music, and and I'm going to start the show off because it's my turn this week. Right. So Sean did not pick blame me. If you want to blame somebody, blame me. All right. All right, Sean. So when I say the word disco, tell me the first image that comes to mind. Well, the first image that pops into my head is John Travolta on the dance floor Saturday Night Fever. So he has not seen my notes, and I'm turning my notes around to him, and that is one of the choices okay. right down there. All right. Yep. So that, believe it or not, um, you know when I when I was bringing up the topic to my wife last night when I said about what we're going to discuss. I asked her the very same question, and guess what? That was the exact image that she also thought of, was Saturday Night Fever. See, and the reason I, I would guess for me, and, and maybe Amy as well, is because we were, we're, we're younger when, when disco starts. It, it, disco basically starts, what you, at least in the, the popular mainstream, it's probably like 77, 78, thereabouts. Yeah, so what we're going to do with this particular episode, and rather than talking about specifically just disco <clears throat> what i want to do is kind of look at it from a historical perspective and look at it how did disco come to be you know how do we how do we get there how did it start how did we get there and where did you start to see it turn from uh sort of an underground type of uh, musical genre to something that became it, it, it permeated every part of when you're talking 1978, 1979, disco was absolutely everywhere. So we're going to look at it from from all those different angles. And you know, when when you said about the 75, 76 is probably where disco really started to take off nationally in, in the United States. And but it was there before. It, 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 you know, I'll talk about the evolution of it, but what really made it take the turn and become a part of all culture or popular culture, TV, movies, was like you said, probably around 1977, right around the time when uh, Saturday Night Fever took off. A lot of people credit Saturday Night Fever with bringing, taking disco to the next level. And, but so that's probably about the time period. You're talking a, a short window here, 77, 1977 to 1980 was probably when it was at its peak. And I knew John Travolta, you know, he's Vinnie Barbarino from uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. So I, the, the fact that he went on and was in this big movie and, you know, it becomes a smash. I think that's probably why it's the first image that I come up with, because it, it disco wasn't really on the radar for me until I started seeing commercials and things with John Travolta in them. Right. So, you know, I was trying to think about what can we title this this particular episode, and I was going to say uh, the rise and fall of disco. And then when I was doing my research online, I saw the rise and fall of disco okay. show up a lot. Right. So I don't want to I don't want to uh, perjure myself and and uh, you know uh, 
you know, take credit from for some no of these. no plagiarism yeah, here plagiarism yeah yep. so i i didn't want to uh you know incriminate myself by saying uh taking somebody else's title so i thought you know do we call it disco 101 so i thought well you know what is you, you learn dance steps in disco so why don't we call it disco step by step because sure. we're going to look at it from from beginning to end so we'll call it disco step by step so where did disco start from? So like, we got to go back. You want to go back to post-World War II. Oh, you are going way back. I'm going way back. Yeah. All right, post-World War II. The name disco is actually a shortened version of the word discotheque, which many of you have probably heard already. Discotheque is actually a French word, and the definition of discotheque is library of phonograph records. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. So you have library of phonograph records. Why did a discotheque even come into play in France? Well, you think about it. World War II, a lot of male soldiers died. A lot of people that were potential musicians are no longer able to play at these venues. These venues needed to stay in business. One of the things about having music at a restaurant or a club, you needed a live band at the time. Well, if there was a shortage of musicians, how are you going to keep the people entertained with music? You had to do it through records. Mm -hmm. So the discotheque, in, by definition, began because these, uh, these French clubs started playing records as opposed to having live music because they did it out of necessity. They didn't actually have it because of, of a, um, a need or a want, or not a need, but of a want. It was a need where they had to do that. So... Uh, it was cheaper for them to, to play records than hire bands because bands obviously became pretty expensive. And that is, to me, check that off on your list as far as the influence is from disco to today, how we currently do things, because uh, I am going to bring that up here at the very end. So remember that. It's true okay. to this day. It's cheaper to have, a, have somebody play records than it is to hire a live band. Okay. okay? A mental right. note. Yep. All right. Got it. So that is in Europe. Now, over in the United States, we're going to go back to uh, the sock hop. So the sock hop, as our parents, particularly our mom, because our mom was really into popular music, and she, she referenced uh, you know American Bandstand as something she did not miss every day. So you're looking at the sock hops. And what the sock hops were, uh, it, they were dances, typically at high school gyms. Uh, you know, mom, when she had hers, they were after basketball games. They would have the game. And then they would have a sock hop mm -hmm. where they would they would stay and they would have a dance. They would play records and they would introduce them to couples dancing to faster music that wasn't big band music. So we're not talking the swing. We're not talking the waltz, the foxtrot. We're talking couples starting to dance together to faster music that's not slow dancing. So when you're looking at uh, when you're when you think about the the music. Rockabilly had a had a big influence because it started to introduce a beat. All right, so you have artists out there that are playing a style of music uh, that has a kind of familiar, a faster beat pattern to it. One of the first groups would be Bill Haley in the Comets. You know, Rock Around the Clock, mm -hmm. uh, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. See you later, Alligator. These are these are great to me. Great songs yep, to this day. Still hold up. All right, so you're talking Bill Haley in the Comets. You're talking uh, uh, Buddy Holly. You're talking the, the Everly Brothers. Think back to the movie Back to the Future, okay? And I don't want to, um, 
you know, discredit a lot of the early rhythm and blues, which inspired a lot of these groups like Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers. So you're looking at the rhythm and blues side, which was Chuck Berry, Fats Domino. These were guys, Little Richard. Little Richard was is, is somebody that is credited so many times by musical artists over the years as somebody that they, when they heard on the radio for the very first time, it was like they were mesmerized. It's like, that's when I wanted to be a musician. So these guys created a, and I was particular not to call it R&B because, yeah, was that? because, because of the rhythm and blues. The rhythm is just as important as the blues part of the song. So a, a very basic but continuous backbeat, something that you can keep your feet moving to. And that's really what introduced uh, couples across America, not only in big cities, but in middle America everywhere, where they could start to dance to these songs because they had a faster tempo to them. As with you know Dick Clark and his influence in all types of music, uh, rock and roll, and eventually into disco. Now, American Bandstand, the show, probably didn't get into as much disco in the 70s as Soul Train, which we'll talk a little bit about Soul Train mm -hmm. later on. But you're talking about, uh, you know, when when disco becomes popular, that's when American Bandstand kind of kicks in and, and starts to follow it. But the the American Bandstand introduced a young singer by the name of Chubby Checker, also from Philadelphia, who had a song called The Twist. Which inspired the dance. And The Twist was, I'm going to say it was the first song and somebody may tell me I'm wrong, but I believe it was the first song that had a name to it and a dance name to it. I think that was the first. Chubby Checker will probably tell you, yeah, I'm the first, because mm -hmm. Chubby Checker was the first for everything to Chubby Checker. But um, that that song, and then popularized on American Bandstand, became a national phenomenon. So then uh, with the music industry being copycat, which they always do sure, to this day. Yep. Then all of a sudden, now you're looking at the twist, and then he had to come out with, I think it was Let's Twist Again. Mm -hmm. And then you start to see all these other, I just wrote down uh, four different uh, dances that were very big in the 60s, one of which was the mashed potato. Yeah, that, that would have been my guess. Uh, sung by Dee Dee Sharp, who actually I got to know in real life. She was a former water customer of mine. <laughs> there you go. So I got to know, get to know uh, Dee Dee Sharp. The Swim. Was a uh, was a very popular one that was uh, you know this, obviously you're simulating swimming mm -hmm. in the water. Yep. The locomotion, one of the most frequently covered songs of all time uh, by different groups, and has been on the charts numerous times. I think it's one of the highest charting songs to be done over and over again, like hit the charts okay. multiple times by multiple singers. Uh, the Watusi. I don't know if anybody uh, listening to the show would remember the Watusi, but Again, it was the, there was a, people started naming dances and these are all dances that can be done guy, girl, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, where they could do these dances together and you are, uh, but it's with fast popular music. It's not listening to Henry Mancini do, you know, a summer of love kind of, kind of music where it's more or less elevator type music. And that's what you're dancing to. It's good, you know, I have nothing against Henry Mancini, but this is where you're starting to see couples 
whatever's popular on the radio, they're dancing to it. And also, they may be dancing together, but sometimes they're, they're not even touching. They're, they're dancing in close proximity. And, and I'm thinking the twist in particular. Right. It's something where you're just standing there next to somebody and you're performing a dance, but you're dancing together. Right, exactly. So you're not necessarily holding hands. Right. But you are doing, you're kind of mimicking the same movements together. And it was something that in, in the 60s, was was hugely popular and successful. So you you have that side of the music industry and then obviously you're starting to see the the rock and roll kind of the uh, rock and roll take another step away. You're, you're a little bit more uh anti-culture uh where the counterculture is what you would call it where they're um kind of anti-society sort of thing. Well there were still quite a few kids in the 60s that you know still liked mom and dad. They still had, you know, boyfriend or as the Tom Petty song goes, um, you know, crazy about Elvis. Uh, She's a good girl. She's a good girl. Yeah. Yeah. So um, she likes horses. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where we're that's kind of where we're going here. But that's on that's that's part of it. So now we're going to move on to step two. All right. We'll talk step two, the roots of disco. So the roots of disco, I think, to me go back to Motown and the, the evolution of Motown. So now you're starting to see, you know, Chubby Checker had the twist, but in terms of music that was just cranked out by one particular label, you would have to say that would be Motown. And, and Motown, which was uh, started by Barry Gordy and also Smokey Robinson, who mm-hmm. was also with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. But the amount of work that those those uh that that studio that record label put out over the course of the next 12 to 13 years i would argue and say that that single-handedly brought dance music to the national popular stage okay i don't want to miss phil specter and his wall of sound because he had his own groups as well phil specter was huge in his own right similar kind of process Where's the similarity between them? And this is where you're going to start to see the disco uh, kind of the formula come into play. And both guys believe, Barry Gordy and um, Phil Phil Spector, Spector, believe that I'm going to minimize the music in the background and I'm going to emphasize the singers and I'm going to, uh, you know, catchy, catchy, hooky songs that, people would listen to on the radio you're not you're whereas you would have individual bands who would play different styles of music now all of a sudden you have the funk brothers and if you don't know who the funk brothers are the funk brothers were the house band for motown and the funk brothers it was the same group of guys and they played on just about every motown album so that's why when you listen to all these different artists they have they have slightly different variations of music but if you go back and listen to motown music you can kind of hear it and 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 notice it that the a lot of these songs were all performed by the same group of your core group guys which was which was they gave themselves the name the funk brothers right nobody knew who they were until they finally got credited i think in like the early 70s and these guys were incredible session musicians and they just went in every day all right, who are we playing with today? The Temptations? Okay, mm-hmm. you know. Are we playing with oh, the, Diana Ross and the Supremes? Okay, you know, it's just, they just kept one artist after another. Marvin Gaye, 
Um, but what that did was it created not not necessarily uh, you know a unique sound to the group, but that sound kept within its time frame that it could be played on the radio and that it could be sent out to the masses. And I know uh, I'm going to talk about another version of of uh, music which is soul music. There's a lot of similarities between Motown and soul, but I can but I would best believe that the articles and what I read and have uh, seen written about the naysayers from soul music to Motown was that uh, people that were into soul music said that Motown was kind of watered down, but I think that was done intentionally. I think it was done to kind of hit all the masses as opposed to only playing for one demographic in the country. I, I, I would totally agree with that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with what Barry Gordy decided to do because he did make it something that the masses wanted. And that kind of goes into pop music in general. You know, you, there's there's people like you and I fall in this category. We love pop music. It's 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 polished. It's well-produced. It's well-written. It's catchy. That's what a pop song is all about. There'll be other people that hate pop music because it's not authentic enough. It's It's not rootsy enough. It's not soulful enough. And that's fine. I I, I I have an appreciation for for soul music. I have appreciation for you know maybe some rock music that doesn't fit tightly into the you know the three minute format that a, a pop song is going to. I still prefer pop music. And Barry Gordy understood that he's creating an entire package. You know he he was creating the look for the performers, the not just you know, their their physical appearance, but also their style. They used to have to go to school to learn manners and they could conduct an interview and they knew how to dress. It all was part of this, this formula that Barry Gordy had created. And, and I agree with you, you know, even down to the, to the house musicians, mm-hmm. the fact that there was a Motown sound in a way as an artist, you may not like that, but it does kind of make you replaceable. So if, if Barry Gordy decides at some point, you know what, Marvin Gaye, you're too much of a handful. I'm going to move on, and I'm sinking all my more of my resources into the temptations. He could do that. So that was part one of uh, of our second step, which is the roots. Let's talk about soul music. And in researching this this episode and going back and watching YouTube clips, I I I, I already loved a lot of these groups. I have a, a, quite a few songs from some of the names that I'm going to okay. uh, bring up. Well, we talk about. Soul music. There's the Godfather of Soul, who James is James Brown. James Brown, hardest working man in show business. And um, so another name that came up was Otis Redding, mm-hmm. uh, Wilson Pickett, another great artist, Jackie Wilson, Jackie, sure, Sam Cooke. Yeah, we're talking. We're talking soul music. James Brown and Wilson Pickett. If you go, if I have to make any kind of a suggestion to anybody listening to this show, go back to YouTube and pull up clips of Wilson Pickett. And James Brown in their heyday, so we're talking, we're talking. I watched a Wilson Pickett uh, clip from a concert from 1966, mm-hmm. and he sings "Land of a Thousand Dances." I cannot recommend enough for somebody to go in and and just watch. See, and, and when you do that, think, picture the image and the difference between Motown and Soul when you're watching that that single video right there. Well, okay? Soul's dangerous. I mean that's they're especially you, you, any of those artists you mentioned outside of Sam Cooke, probably because Sam Cooke was very smooth. But 
James Brown, he, he was a dangerous man, and that's kind of how they portrayed him. You know, Otis Wilson the same way. It, it the or Otis Redding, sorry, not not Otis Wilson, the linebacker from the Bears back in the eighties. <laughs> sorry about that. Number fifty five yeah. in your program. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it there there I, I think that goes back to Barry Gordy's desire to kind of uh, present a clean cut image to the masses where things might have been going on behind the scenes, but at least to, as far as the public was concerned, you know, everybody was very straight and narrow there at Motown, but that wasn't the case with, with uh, soul music. In a way, they kind of took the same mentality as a lot of rock bands took. And maybe the rock bands took it from the soul singers. I, I don't know, but they were known as a hard-living crowd. Soul music, uh, much a little bit different than Motown. Motown, like, like we said, was, was very tightly produced and packaged. Uh, soul music, it, it was more improvisational. A little bit had a little bit more of a jazz, jazzy sound. So it's kind to of it. church background yes, to it. Absolutely. So, what gets it going is your rhythm section, your bass, and your drums, and you got that driving. And what soul music had that a lot of Motown uh, was a prominent horn section in soul music. Mm-hmm. So you, you it was, had, yeah, you had a lot of horns, a lot of trumpets in in soul music. And then you had guys that were singing like their life depended on it. And when you listen to dropping to their knees, if, and if you waiting for it, you watch that. I'm telling you, watch that Wilson Pickett, that Land of a Thousand Dances clip on YouTube. He is drenched, yeah, and he's singing like I said, like his life depends on it. And then they actually have a camera shot where it's behind him as he's singing out to the theater, and it's just a theater. It's not room. And that place is just jumping. And I, I, you would have to watch a lot of videos of a lot of concerts to see people dancing like that all together in, in a, a pretty confined space. Okay, so let's move on to step number three, the evolution of the disco sound. So we kind of covered the basics here when, when you're looking at the, the Phil Spector Motown where you're starting to tightly package your, uh, you know, your product, your you're, you have a little bit more control, and you you mentioned that before. If you're if you're a voice and you've got eight other voices waiting out in the lobby to come in and sing another song too, you know you're you're not quite as huge or as important or as necessary as the sound itself. It's the system that matters. Correct. Now, how did the disco sound? Uh, take these elements of Motown and uh, soul music. So the disco sound, whereas yes, there are, there's horns and there's musical instruments in soul music, just like there is in disco, but where disco started to take on its, its own sound was when they brought in more classical musical instruments, such as strings and they started bringing in, uh, and they dialed it down where the, the trumpet guy's not trying to, you know, hit it at the at the point. There, it's more controlled. It's more more conducted than what it was in the past with soul music because it's you know soul music, fewer musicians. Now all of a sudden you you've got quite a few people up on stage, and they're starting to make these uh, uh, like a like a, it's it's combining the elements of orchestra and. I, you know, you would say um, rock and soul type music. Sure, where some of the sound, especially the Philadelphia sound, that was definitely known for having that orchestral element to it. Yeah, sure. 
one of the most important and influential uh, groups or names to disco is Gamble and Huff and the Sound of Philadelphia or Philly Soul. It has mm-hmm. different names, but TSOP. So when I'm talking about TSOP, I'm talking about the Sound of Philadelphia. So <clears throat> the Sound of Philadelphia was it has it's had many different labels put on it uh one of the quotes that i found was interesting i wrote it down was that uh, the sound of gamble and huff it was called sanitized soul and funk sanitized soul and funk mm-hmm. fred wesley who was a trombonist for both james brown and parliament funkadelic all right he said the sound of philadelphia put the bow tie on funk i don't think he was saying that as a good thing uh, you know, it, it was met with its certain number of critics. And uh, imagine if you are a, uh, you know, somebody who is steeped in uh, soul music. And I, I use the example of James Brown and Wilson Pickett. When disco starts in the sound of Philadelphia, when that starts to come into play, James Brown was, he did have a comeback hit or album in 1976, but it was like a 10 year gap. I mean, this guy was struggling for 10 years to sell records until he was finally able to, to get back with a hit song. But, I mean, this put a dent in soul music. And I, I can understand why these guys sure. might be, might be uh, you know, bitter about it. And you kind of mentioned that with soul music, it's, it's a little more about the feeling. And it, you might have a, a, a song where there's a structure, but it's a loose structure and it kind of allows for a little improv where you didn't have any of that with what you're talking about with that Philadelphia sound, it was very tightly uh, put together. It was polished. You know, you mentioned Phil Spector. And Phil Spector was notorious for, some would say, overproducing. And he he was somebody that controlled every step of the process. Every note had to meet his approval. It, it wasn't like the, uh, the book that you and I both read about Johnny Cash, where he would roll into the studio there at Sun Records, and ju- they would just hit record. And it was what Johnny was giving you that day is what, what got recorded. Now you move forward where you have these, it becomes artist driven and now it's producer driven. Right. Anyway, I'm going to, so the sound of Philadelphia, I'm going to, I'm going to throw some names out for you and some songs. So please, please check these out. Harold Melvin and the blue notes mm-hmm. featuring Teddy Pendergrass. Ah, uh, the great Teddy P. Teddy Pendergrass has, you know, I had said about Wilson Pickett having an incredible Teddy Pendergrass may have the best singing voice I've ever heard uh, for for a male singer. I I, I just when I whenever I listen to whether it's his solo work or his songs with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, I'm just captivated by his range and his ability. He's got this raspy voice that, as you said before, it was it was it was bred in church. Yeah, that's where he got started in church choir mm-hmm. and he just has these unbelievable pipes. And uh, so the love I lost is a song. I recommend check it out. Okay. That's Harold Melvin and the blue notes featuring Teddy Pendergrass. Uh, we talked about blue eyed soul, Daryl Hall and John Oates. All right. She's gone. Okay. Can, yeah, most everybody probably listening to this has listened to Daryl Hall and John Oates. She's gone. Great song done in the same type of pattern. It wasn't produced by Gamble and Huff, but it was kind of a copycat version of, uh, you know, the sound of Philadelphia. Here's an early one. This, this is actually credited as one of the first early, early disco type songs, which was the soul survivors expressway to your heart. Check it out. The soul survivors expressway to your heart. 
The Expressway was actually uh, the name that the guy who wrote the song got it from the Schuylkill Expressway okay. as they were building it in the 1960s and he was sitting there in traffic and traffic wasn't moving, much like it does today yeah, if you've been down there. changed. And so as he was sitting there in traffic, the song came to his, he was singing, thinking about a girl. He's on the Schuylkill Expressway. Yeah, Expressway to, to your heart. Okay, there you go. Okay. All right, it's a hit. And finally, uh, the OJs. Uh, a band that was, uh, you know, formed in and around Philadelphia. Uh, Love Train is one of my favorites. So that gets played a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's probably, you know, outside of Daryl Hall and John Oates, that's the one that most people probably would have heard. Yeah, we, we, we touched on the, the look, you know, and, and the sound of Philadelphia created a specific look. And, I, you know, we talked about Motown. People are immaculately, immaculately dressed. And I think that's something that carried over into TSOP with Gamble and Huff is you're performing to a lot of different audiences, a lot of different people. You, you are slick, you dress well, you have choreographed sure. dance moves. Yeah. That's a big but, part of it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, when you watch videos of the spinners or you watch videos of the OJs or you watch, no matter who you're looking at, they all have, they may be standing in front of a microphone, but they're doing this. They're doing the same stuff. Right. And it looks good. It does look good. Yeah. You know? And then finally, uh, when we talk about influential TV into the sound of Philadelphia, which was the TV show Soul Train, started in 1973 nationally. Now, before that, it had started around 1970, 1971 by Don Cornelius, who was the host for over 20 years. I think he did almost 800 episodes of Soul Train. But Soul Train was a was a song dedicated to... Um, more of that Motown soul music type type sound music. Whereas American Bandstand, it's, I think Dick Clark was strictly, I would say, whatever's on the top 20, that's what Dick Clark's going to have on American Bandstand. Right. Whereas uh, Soul Train, the name's in there. It's called Soul Train for a reason. And it was it was based more on the, on the soul music, which, uh, you know, the theme song eventually became TSOP, the Sound of Philadelphia by the band MFSB. And that was the theme song for Soul Train. So that's the sound that Soul Train was primarily in the in the uh, 1970s. And a show that you and I watched early on as a young kid because we liked the music that they showed on, on the TV show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Don Cornelius, uh, you know, for those who don't remember Don Cornelius, he was very distinct. He was... He was very smooth. He had this deep voice, very deep voice, and he was, he was very classy. How he would interview people, and he was, you know, kind of reserved. Where Dick Clark was completely different. He was America's. He he was the oldest teenager, right? Right. So he always was always full of enthusiasm and and always happy to meet the people and shaking hands and just a totally different perspective. One was just bouncy and poppy, kind of like the music that was on the show. And Don Cornelius would introduce these young these young soul artists, and oftentimes when you watch Soul Train, you would see some up and coming artist. And I, one of the reasons I liked the show was because it would introduce me to new music that I wasn't necessarily hearing on mainstream pop radio because these were soul artists. But I would, you know, especially you know when we get into the eighties, you know, there'll be young artists that might come out, you know, like, you know that like a Rick James would have appeared on the Soul Train and, you know, a Prince, uh, Run DMC appeared on Soul Train. So these were, this was a, a place to kind of see that early type of, of hip hop music. All right. So let's move on. 
one of the most influential things from disco music that still holds true today, that is still being done today, is the atmosphere. So we're talking about the nightclub, the nightclub atmosphere. I'm talking about sound and I'm talking about lighting. Those two elements are as important today as they were in the early 70s. Think about it. So when our mom is going to the sock hop in the uh, you know late 50s, early 60s. Which is in the school gymnasium. Correct. So your, your portable PA system, uh, you, have, you have difficulty getting proper sound in a gymnasium like that. All right. Not only that, the guy who's spinning the records, the DJ, he's only got one record player. So when you're switching from one record to the next, you got to talk, right? Sure. So there's a lot of talking in between the songs. So, you know, instead of having some guy up there saying, Hey, you Jim's and Sal's are my best pals. And as he's like flipping the records, that's why he's talking to everybody. Cause he's got to change the song. So that's, uh, you know, that is the big, one of the big elements is, uh, you know, going to a place. All right. So instead of investing in live music, now you're investing in better sound systems. So there's a reason why when you hear about when bands would go on con you know, on tours, they had one bus that had them in it, and then the other bus had the roadies and all their equipment in it. There was a reason for that because they wanted a, they wanted a specific sound, and it took many, many years for that sound to be replicated in multiple venues. So they had to, they had to come up with some way of creating, you know, it's like, all right, the sound is very important. And so now look at it from the nightclub standpoint. All right. So we want to bring people in. We're going to play records as opposed to having live band music. So we have to have decent sound when, when these, when we're actually having people come in and dance, it's got to sound like it does on the radio. Like it's almost like live sounding music. Okay. So that's where that comes into play. Clubs start investing more money into their sound systems to make the music sound better. And when I watched the documentary on Studio 54, they spent almost as much money on their sound and lighting system as they did on anything else in the whole building. Because they knew that if they wanted to get the best of the best to come into their club, it had to sound like no other club that they went to. Well, ultimately, you're talking about dance clubs. Correct. So it, I mean, the, the whole purpose of the venue is to get people up and dancing. And if the sound isn't good, it's not going to happen. And then on top of that, now you have the element of lighting that comes in. When you think of disco, what's the first thing that you think of that's hanging up in the ceiling? Well, you, you think you think of the, uh, the the ball that spins around, but you know, as you were talking about that, you know, the first thing that I think of is is the lit dance floor. That I'd, I'd never seen anything like that before, and probably you know when you asked me my first my first image of disco, and I said John Travolta. My second image would be the lighted dance floor. Now, we did not have the uh, fortune of growing up in a big city that had, you know, an expensive nightclub. We would not have been exposed to disco music per se via the nightclub. No. We're young kids. No. All right. But we did get exposed to disco music. And um, for middle America, for Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, that was the roller skating rink. Sure. And the roller skating rink was a big part you, of they disco. Get, they would get the strobe light out. And they would have the disco ball up there. Sure. And you would have different various types of lighting. Obviously, you're not talking Studio 54, but for us, it was a change of pace and did provide a little bit more excitement and enjoyment 
and you certainly helped as a kid that in the dark you weren't going to fall down but it was fun that, that to me that was my first memory of disco music was going to the roller skating rinks i you know because we were so young uh at that time i don't even know if, if there would be quote unquote a disco club even in the in our town no you probably would have had to have traveled to philadelphia or Baltimore, or I, I don't even think Harrisburg would have had anything at that time. Yeah, the, the big discotheque in Philadelphia was called Artemis. That was the big one in, in Philly. And that was, I, I mean, I, Philly was, you know, a lifetime away if you're a little kid. So we did have a couple, we actually had two roller skating rinks pretty close to us here mm-hmm. where we grew up. So if it wasn't one, it was the other. And that's to me those those are my real big memories of listening to music in the seventies was going to those those nights at the roller rink. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's that's probably the equivalent for a kid for a Gen Xer, you know, our audience out there. We're not old enough to go to discos. You know, disco is as you mentioned, it's a late seventies thing. You should not have been in a disco when you were eight nine years old. Now, our sister Lori, who we've mentioned before, uh, Lori was a big influence on on. Mia, I would say you probably would agree too, because she had she listened to a lot of different types of music. Mm-hmm. She had disco records, and sure. when our family would come over, our extended uh, family, our cousins would come over in our old house where we grew up. It, you go up to, into the upstairs hallway, and all the bedrooms were. It was like the hallway itself was a square, and you could. Uh, close it off. We had a little little sliding, not a fo- folding door at the top of the steps. So as little kids, we used to go upstairs and because Lori's bedroom was right there and she had her big record player, she would play music and we pretend we we made our own little disco. Do you remember that? Absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we used to always have a dance party. That's right. You and, know, while the adults were downstairs, you know, having a conversation or playing a, a card game. We were up there spinning the records and having a dance party. So, I mean, as little kids, we, we kind of recognized the, the idea of what a discotheque sure. was, even though we'd never been to one. Right. So we were trying to recreate some of that, some of that scene and, our, and that sound ourselves. And a, a lot of times I was with Lori, like just going through her records and throwing an album on there. But again, you're talking about, you know, one record player, whereas these clubs now, they started to do dual turntables. So you could go from one song to the next without having any disruption or interruption of the music. It's a constant flow. People can stay out there and dance longer. Right. And it's, you know, at least, uh, you know, because I went back and I rewatched the movie Saturday Night Fever here just this past week to, you know, kind of prep for the show. And, you know, that that definitely was an entire culture that was going on. I know when we got a little bit older and they, you know, they had the, the, you know, underage uh, clubs that we could go to. You know, we, we definitely took advantage of that. And it still was a little bit of a holdover, probably, from what was happening there. But yeah, there, there was a totally new element where you might not go watch live music. I mean, because that, that was always the thing. You know, you know, historically, you went to see a band play. It's You, you, you go to concerts. You know, our, our mom has talked about that, you know, going to the Steel Pier in, in Atlantic City and seeing Fabian and uh, you know, Peggy Lee or who was it, Brenda Lee or I think it was, was it Brenda Lee that she saw? Yes, it was, uh, yeah, yeah, Brenda Lee. It was, it was yeah. Brenda, Brenda Lee and Fabian was, was a concert that she saw. So you were going to see live music. You would see Ricky Nelson. It, but now you're right. Now the event isn't necessarily to see an artist. The event is to come together and listen to music together and dance as well. 
All right. So that you, you just brought up Sat Saturday Night Fever, and that's going to bring me to my next step. All right. Which is the movie. Disco at this point is it's popular, but it's not mainstream. So there's disco songs that are that are getting onto the charts. Like I said, I talked about the sound of Philadelphia. You got the OJs, the spinners. The one moment that really kicked up uh, disco to another level was the movie Saturday Night Fever. And, and I don't know that you would have called those songs that you mentioned or those artists that you mentioned disco artists or that they were disco songs. They may have been dance. Right. But they they did not have the, the title, the, the moniker disco. Yeah, it's kind of like when when our our kids talk about the word mullet. Yeah, yeah, which did not exist. <laughs> yeah, mullet didn't exist in the eighties. I didn't have one because there was no such thing right. as mullet. Anyway, um, so yeah, Saturday Night Fever, starring John Travolta, comes out. It's produced. Uh, the guy who was backing the movie, who wanted to create the movie, was a guy by the name of Robert Stigwood. Robert Stigwood was big in the music industry. He had managed the Bee Gees for many years. And he also managed Eric Clapton for, for many years as well. So his background was in music. And he came up, uh, he had seen a script and he came up with a concept of a movie that is heavy on the music side. Make no mistake about it. Um, but it's, it's a story about, uh, you know, John Travolta's character is he lives in Brooklyn and he, uh, he's got all, he's got a, he's not living the best life away but, so you know, his family's having problems. His brother just quit the priesthood. That'd be uh, Frank uh, Frank Jr., uh, Fa Father Frank Jr., Father, as they always called him. Father Frank Jr. Yeah. And he's young. He's 21 years old. I don't think he's that old. In the movie, they were. I think he's only 19. Oh, maybe you're right. Yeah, he's, yeah. So, the, girl, it, the girl is 21. She's a little bit older. Yes. And, and the idea is there's this pattern that keeps repeating itself. You know, he he is kind of in Brooklyn with his family and he, he he hangs out with his friends and everybody has a similar life. You know, there's there's one reference after he has an issue with his boss at the hardware store. He, he gets hired back again and the, the boss says, hey, listen, I, my guy stay with me. This, you know, this guy over here, he's been with me 18 years. He's been with this other guy's been with me 15 years. I want, I want you to be part of the family. And Tony is does not want that life because he kind of sees, oh, if I don't do something, I'm going to be stuck in this cycle. Right. So, you know, there's different part of what makes the driving force behind the movie Saturday Night Fever is not necessarily the story, although it did do it was critically well received. Travolta got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. But it was the music that drove that movie and it was set around a nightclub that they frequented every Saturday where where he was the star he he was he and his friends were the kings of the disco they they did not have great lives during the week but they would they would work an entire week so they could spend all their money on a saturday night and go in, into the disco where they were greeted like royalty when they would walk in remember he was mad at his boss because his boss paid him on monday correct and he said, ah, you know, if I pay you on Friday, you're going to spend it all over the weekend. So that's why I pay you on Monday. So, he, you know, he was mad at his boss because he, he didn't have as much money to spend on the weekends as he felt that he should have. But everybody, I believe, watching or listening to this podcast knows the movie Saturday Night Fever. So without getting into too much detail, uh, it did. It, it, it revolutionized, revolutionized 
the uh, you know the music industry, and it was a it was a huge movie. It the budget was three and a half million dollars. It made two hundred and thirty seven million dollars, which by today's standards, if you adjust inflation, that's almost a billion dollars for a movie, which would make it one of the biggest. I, I think they said it's rated like number ten. If you go through adjusted inflation, okay. number 10 still of all time in terms of uh, how successful it was at the box office. So it's a movie that's almost 50 years old and is still in that high regard in terms of box office sales. That That's big. It's a huge movie. It maybe bears kind of dissecting what made this such a cultural phenomenon. You know, obviously Travolta was, was big, but, you know, it's it's... He wouldn't be the first actor that was big on a television show that kind of bombed when he when he goes out and, and makes a movie. I I think th- there was just this image that you could escape, that you could go to the disco, you, that you could, you know, this this enjoyment that they had, where no matter how bad their lives were, for that night when they're at the disco, they're caught up in the music, they're caught, you know, they they're dancing, and it, you know. What, what they're able to, you know, to do out there is it takes them out. It, it's, a, it's an escapism, and I don't know if people identified with that. The story was interesting, but I think while, the, while the, the movie did well for the story, the idea was the disco aspect of it is really what drew people in. Yeah, so I was going to bring it up a little bit later, but I might as well bring, bring it up now since you just mentioned it, is that was what a lot of people identified, not necessarily the movie, but they identified going to that type of a club where you would, you would go up. Uh, yeah. You would spend a lot of money on your clothing because you had to look, a you had to look way. the part. Yeah. But if you could do that, if you could pull that off and go inside, it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, it really didn't. If you it, could be, dance, if you looked right, it didn't matter. Yeah, and that's part of the whole story of what Studio Fifty Four was a, was about. Because for as many famous people that that hung out in that particular club, there were also no name people that they found were interesting and they had a certain look to them. So they were they the Studio Fifty Four famously turned people away uh, at the door because they said so they didn't look right and. I know Niall Rogers, mm-hmm. who was with the band Chic, and he tells a story, whether it's true or not, it's a great story. Uh, yeah. And he's telling the story about he's trying to get into Studio 54. He can hear Lafreak being played inside, <laughs> yeah. and the guy won't let him in and says, you know, you don't look right, pal. Yeah. Forget it. And then and the, and they kicked him out, and he wasn't he didn't get any access. The, the actress that played Stephanie in Saturday Night Fever who is John Travolta's love interest, his dancing partner in the movie, got turned away at Studio 54 as well. Yeah. And she's like, I, I, I was inside of here. like, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, sure you were. Keep on moving. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, you, you know, you talk about it was, it was a good portion of escapism. Let's face it, you know, America in the 70s, your people's normal lives weren't going that great for a lot of people when you're talking about economically. When you, when you look about uh, the Vietnam the, War, you know, the, the Vietnam War was was just coming to an end in '75. Nixon resigns. Uh, you know Gerald Ford not very well received. Jimmy Carter comes in. The economy's not doing well. So, but there were a lot of things going on that that people weren't particularly thrilled about their everyday lives. This was a way for them to get away from that, and they could do that at the nightclub. 
and just dance the night away with with uh, with music and have a good time. And also the the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack really became a cultural phenomenon. the The BJ's the BGs were a known act bigger in the '60s. They you talked about James Brown kind of having that ten year gap without a hit. The Bee Gees really hadn't had anything for about 10 years. And then they go in the studio and they're asked to sing falsetto, which is not what they used to do. You know, growing up, you and I identified the Bee Gees with that high falsetto sound Mm -hmm. because that was really the first music we heard from them. But when you go back and you listen to their earlier stuff, that's not the way they sounded. No, they were a folk band. Yeah. In the 60s, they were were considered a folk band. And... Uh, I watched a documentary on the the life of the Bee Gees, and Morris tells a story about where he met his wife. And he met her, it was the early 70s, and they were performing at some particular club in London. And he said, that was like, that was like the desert for performers. If you were performing at that club, your career was on the downside. Okay. So he said, that's where he met his wife. And they actually stayed married until his until his death. Um, she was a waitress there, and but he said that was like the lowest point of our careers. So they they get into Atlantic Records, and um, you know the founder of the label encourages them to look for a new sound, something catchier, something because let's you know they're the 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 Philly soul that kind of sound is starting to gain a lot of popularity. So they're, they're encouraged to go to the United States and they go down into Florida to Miami. And what they try and do, which is funny because they're considered like the face of disco, but the sound that they came up with, they were trying to create a band as opposed to them just standing up there and having anybody play their, you know, the, the instruments of their songs. They actually formed a band they they hired a drummer they hired a keyboardist they hired uh you know morris played bass gary uh, barry played guitar so they they were actually a working band and there is a good clip of them on the midnight special where they are just starting and it's funny because if you watch that particular episode they start off with jive talking which which is to me one of their best i think so yeah uh but they they had no, Barry Gibb had said many times, we didn't know what disco was. Uh, if you would have told us that we were playing disco music, I, I would have said, what are you talking about? It, it, to them, it was, they were, they were playing what they thought was more of a Miami type sound, which, uh, you know, people may not know, but the, the band Casey and the Sunshine Band, the Sunshine Band coming from the Sunshine State, which is Florida, they came from the same area. So there was a sound going on there. It was a, it was a kind of a, a combination of of Cuban and Latino music that was was meshing with soul and funk, and it created this this sound. Well, the Bee Gees heard this down there, and that's when they decided to start putting together uh, faster music, uh, up tempo, danceable music. They wanted to create right. dance dance songs, so they they came out with one one album that was before uh, the uh, the one that had Jive talking on it. Didn't do particularly well. So then they come out with this next album and it takes off. And so now they're actually, they're happy because they're a functioning band. And then they, they, they become the Kings of disco. Uh, certainly not a path that they expected to be on, especially when you, when you consider that the roots of disco music, as we touched before, has a lot of Motown soul and then Philly soul roots to it. Now you have 
three English guys, three English folk singers, folk singers who are now uh, considered the poster boys for disco music. When when you go back and watch Saturday Night Fever, it's interesting how at the beginning of the movie, the Bee Gees are given top billing. I mean, I mean, it's Travolta probably is given top billing, but they're second. You don't really see the names of any of the other actors individually. Is John Travolta? Is the Bee Gees? And then they kind of list the rest of the actors in blocks. Well, that soundtrack did uh, did a lot to help promote the movie. Uh, we said it before that that happened a lot with movies and soundtracks back then. The soundtrack was put together as, as kind of a as a as a promotional vehicle to promote the success of the movie. That was the best blend you could say maybe in, in movie and music history. Uh, obviously, Saturday Night Fever is no longer the highest selling soundtrack of all time that goes to Whitney Houston and the Bodyguard. But if you're looking at the movies, I would say that Saturday Night Fever is way more successful than what the Bodyguard was. So when you put the two together, uh, Saturday Night Fever, I think, wins out in terms of movie and music. And you and I heard the music way before we saw the movie mm-hmm. I th- you know we, we had mentioned on on um, our 1970s television podcast where you know we we saw it was the abc uh you know movie of the week is where we finally would have seen saturday night fever a couple years later right but we certainly heard the music at the time it came out around 1977 right yeah absolutely so this is really i mean the first time that you and i have heard of anybody from outside of the United States to us. Now, again, we're talking about little Scotty and little Shawnee, uh, you know, listening to music. There was, uh, you know, a European factor in disco music that started to make its way over in the, the band that kind of represents that is ABBA mm-hmm. because they had a very distinct sound that, uh, that would, fell into the disco mold it's different sound than what you would say TSOP would be or the spinners or the OJs. It was, it was different, but yet it still kind of harmonized with, with the rest of disco at the time. So yeah, we, we, when we talk about the Bee Gees, I think you also need to mention ABBA, which has seen uh, a resurgence lately with those Mamma Mia movies, which fortunately I, I've never watched the complete uh, Mamma Mia movies. Um, but my wife loves them, so okay. I, I can't trash it too bad. Um, but Saturday Night Fever uh, sells 40 million copies. 40 million. Uh, like I said, second best-selling soundtrack of all time. And revolutionizes popular music. You look at uh, you know the top 10 Billboard, Billboard music, uh, the Bee Gees all of a sudden became everywhere. Everywhere to the point where you're three years later, four years later, uh, people were sick of the Bee Gees. Absolutely. And that almost single, I wouldn't say single handle, but that contributed a great deal to the downfall of disco was when the Bee Gees got singled out for, we're sick of hearing these guys. And, and Barry Gibb even commented on it. He goes, I was kind of glad when it was over because it was kind of like a three-year period where I couldn't breathe. Yeah, he's at, at where they lived. And people were climbing over their walls, and the phone kept constantly ringing. He's like, I, I, I knew what it was like to be successful, and then I knew what it was like to not be successful. But then we were beyond the original success. And I was kind of hoping it would end because it just it, it was suffocating. Right, right, and you know, I, I think that is, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. But you know, 
that when you talk about the downfall of disco, it, it's like the downfall of any music genre that's too hot. You know, we'll get into it with some of the late 80s with, you know, a, you know, talk about the mullet not being a term that existed. The term hair bands did not exist back then, you know, but everybody had a power ballad in the late 80s. And, and those what are now, you know, kind of those those glam bands, they get replaced by Nirvana later on. And that's kind of what is, is going to happen to disco. Anytime you're too red hot and you have too many copycat uh, artists that are jumping in, it's going to get oversaturated. And, and I don't know if you're touching on that or not, but you had a lot of mainstream rock artists that have been around, you know, some from the 60s, uh, from the Rolling Stones. Oh, you do have a list you're showing me. Okay, <laughs> yes, well, I do. Well, well, I'll wait. We'll get into that. <laughs> All right. See, so. because, and we've said we do not discuss this before we, we uh, start recording. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, uh, the Bee Gees and ABBA, and when I said about the European, uh, the Bee Gees being from England, ABBA being from, uh, was it Norway or Sweden? Sweden. Sweden. Uh, believe it or not, folks, Donna Summer, who is an American singer, was backed by German producers. That was a German sound. Is that, that George Marauder? I believe so, yes. Yeah. And so when you think about the Donna Summer disco that is very european that was that european sound that was brought over because she was actually a performing stage actress i believe she was in the european version of hair and so she uh that's where she met uh you know people say wow this she's an unbelievable singer which she was and then they brought her to the to the forefront so that the donna summer sound that was you know you could technically say that that was a european mm -hmm. sound. sure right? yeah, definitely europop all right so the success of Saturday Night Fever and with ABBA and particularly Donna Summer. Now, now everybody can't get enough of disco uh, in terms of mainstream popularity. Now, like I said, you may have hated disco growing up. All right. You may have been a rock and roll person through and through. Okay. You're not a part of this. But when you look at popular television, think about all the disco influences that were in television. We talked uh, a couple episodes ago, we talked about late seventies television. One of the scenes that I remember from the love boat is on the love boat, where was one of the places that Isaac tended bar was in the disco. They mm -hmm. had a disco on the boat. Charlie's angels very much had a disco vibe to it. Think about the way that they wore their hair. You know, they had the feathered hair, the, the, um, it was flowing. It was, it was meant to, you know, whip your head around and, uh, you know, guys were bringing out hair dryers, which translated into the '80s as well. If you right. were, if you were an '80s guy and had hockey hair, you had a hair dryer. So hey, uh, that kind of came from the '70s, the older kids before us. All right, so the hair was very important. But uh, and and uh, you know, Travolta talks about that in Saturday Night Fever when his dad hits him in the head, and after he just he goes, "Hey, don't hit my hair." He goes, "You know, I spend a lot of time on my hair." Yeah, you know, and hair hair was very important to us too. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and you know, and that's the thing. You know, you talk about uh, you know, like like down to Charlie's Angels, which is a show that was a lot about fashion, and that was extremely important when with this disco culture. It it you definitely had to had to. I mean, the, the kind of three piece polyester suit is kind of what became the joke about it later on. But I think the probably some of the upper end clubs, if you're going to Studio Fifty Four. You're not wearing the polyester suit. You're probably wearing the silk shirt, and uh, you're not necessarily wearing the the big platform shoes. But those are kind of the, you know, the the outfits that you're wearing. But the idea is, it still was important to have the right hair and the right clothes. Absolutely, and um, I mentioned the love boat, and 
Charlie's Angels, which coincidentally were produced by the same TV producer, Aaron Spelling, mm-hmm. who I think more than just about any TV producer of his time really kind of had his finger on the pulse of current, uh, uh, you know, what may have been a hot topic or, uh, you know, where disco was big. So he was going to capitalize on it. He was going to put it into his TV show somehow. And I think he, I think he did that with uh, with with some of the TV shows that he produced. And I'd mentioned two of them right there. Sure. And it, that, that I think that's just smart. I mean, if, if you have your, your finger on the, the pulse of pop culture, and that's what this our podcast is about. It's, it's about the pop culture that we loved. You're going to have pop culture that you look back on is, is kind of silly sometimes. And why was it forced in there? But also, you know, like even with disco. While it's certainly not a genre that I go back to frequently, it's something now that I can kind of look back and and some of those elements. It it seems is kind of it, it's campy. It's 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 harmless in, in a way, uh, but it definitely for about two year period. And, and you're going to talk some more about it, but it you could not escape it because pop culture just this was the dominant force for about two years. So I went on to uh, MeTV.com. If you're not familiar with MeTV, it's a great TV channel that has all types of nostalgic shows on it. Great, uh, anything from like Andy Griffith to Happy Days or Doogie Howser, you you might see on MeTV. So MeTV.com actually had a list of 10 actors who recorded disco albums. And I'm going to read them to Sean. Mm-hmm. And Sean's going to tell me who they were and where they came from. All right? okay. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure he's going to get 100%. Might, All right, maybe. might get nine out of 10. All right. right. Number one, Linda Carter. Linda Carter was Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. That's sure. right. She made a disco album. Number two, Jeff Conaway. Jeff Conway. Conway. Um, I need a hint. Okay. G- give me a hint. Um, uh, Hickey from Kinnicky's like a Hallmark oh, card. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, Jeff Conaway, the you know, uh, uh, Kinnicky from Greece. Sure, yeah, go. and Taxi and Taxi. Sure, that's yeah. right. Yep. Yeah. All right. All right. Number three, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. I'll. I'll. All right. Think of the actor. All right. Yeah. He played the dad he played joe jackson in the uh, miniseries on freddie boom boom washington freddie boom boom ah. washington from welcome back cotter actually made two disco albums two for i can totally see for boom boom from boom boom doing that number four vicky lawrence yeah vicky lawrence who was on the carol burnett show yep carol burnett show she had a she had a number one song in the early 70s the night the lights went out in georgia right and then she made a disco album after that well of course you'll you'll enjoy this number five meadowlark lemon <laughs> the famous uh harlem globe trotter meadowlark lemon all right this one uh, this one you might not get all right number six is eddie mecca no i don't know eddie mecca okay you would know him better as the big ragu Carmine. Carmine Ragusa from Laverne and Shirley. Oh, all right. Made a disco album in 1979 that was songs loosely based on mafia people. <laughs> all right. Love uh, that was that was my favorite. The big the ragu list. coming up with some mafia yeah. songs. Good. Yep. Good for him. Number seven, Garrett Morris. From Saturday Night Live. Yes. Yeah. And he was actually a very good singer. And um, uh, before Eddie Murphy uh, partied all the time, Garrett Morris actually sang quite a bit on SNL and he was known as a he had a he had a really good singing okay. voice. So he did quite a few albums at the seventies, mm-hmm. but he did a disco album, 
Number eight, Martin Mull. Oh, Martin Mull. I mean, he's been in a lot of television. Yes. I mean, it, it's he was on Roseanne there for a while. And he's yep. been in the movies and Fernwood Tonight. Fern, I, that was where he, he was did the big breakthrough. Fernwood Tonight, and he also played the uh, boss in Mr. Mom. Mm-hmm. He played Terry Gar's boss. Uh, he's been everywhere. He's sure. been in all kinds of things. But Martin Mull did a disco album. You'll like this one. Number nine, Telly Savalas. Telly, you know, I, I did know that. Oh, you did? I, I, okay. I mean, I, I, rem- I remember it. Okay. Because it was kind of spoofed back in the day. It's like, who loves you, baby? And to a disco beat. Yeah. And uh, people think ah, it's kind of corny, but it was done in the 80s, too. I mean, Rodney Dangerfield uh, did Twist and Shout. And the Beatles Telly song. Savalas, you know, Kojak, of yeah, course. Yeah. Telly Savalas from Kojak. And number 10, Anson Williams. That would be uh, Potsy Weber. Yep, sit on a Potsy. Yep, sit on a Potsy. Did a disco album in in the late seventies. Um, so there's your top ten actors who did disco albums. Um, rock rock and roll artists mm-hmm. who did disco songs. They didn't necessarily do entire albums, but they definitely did disco songs. All right. Um, number uh, well, some of them they they came out in the eighties, so I wouldn't really qualify them as disco, but they did they did definitely go for a dance type song. Okay. So I'm going to skip over those. So I'll, I'll throw out the first one. The Rolling Stones did a disco song called Miss You in the late seventies. They did. Yeah. And I, I heard, uh, you know, Mick Jagger say that, you know, it was inspired by studio 54. I mean, okay. he said he wasn't necessarily a disco song. It's just that the vibe, cause he, he got from studio 54 cause he was a regular there. Right. Uh, Paul McCartney and wings. Good night tonight. Um, that was a song that they did that was okay. pure disco. Yeah. All right. Uh, Rod Stewart, probably the most famous of a guy who goes into that sure. rock category with Do You Think I'm Sexy, which was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. You know, it, it yeah, it's, you know, it is disco, but I think it's, of, of, of the list you're going to read off, that was the one that when I was a kid, I probably would have liked the most. The next one is, is probably the one that I think I like the most just because it came out a year later and I was a little bit younger than you was Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. Was you think that's disco? I do, yeah. All yeah, right. That was definitely because that was definitely played in the same in the same realm. But that was that was uh it kind of fell into that disco. Yeah, I mean I, I I mean I yeah, that's a good song. I um, so and that was that was eighty or seventy nine. That was nineteen eighty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was kinda of the end of the reign. Um but Probably the one that everybody, if if you think of rock music, if you're a fan of rock music, the one that I think rankles the most. I, I, it, I do you want me to guess? Go ahead. It's going to be Kiss. I was made for loving you. Yes. Yeah. Is, or as in the words of Gene Simmons, we talk about history, which I've heard him use that word before. History. History. Yeah. I was made for loving you, and uh, Paul Stanley, who who said that, oh, we didn't write this to be a disco song; we meant it to be a live song. Yeah, right, Paul. I, I Gene Simmons has recently said it is the song he hates the most <laughs> that they've ever done, and he said I still have to play it every night, and right. he, he despises it. That's right, history. Right? <laughs> How did you like my Gene and Paul impressions? Uh, you I'm know, not, I, it's not exactly uh, Greg Gas, but uh, well, you know, I I, I got to admit, the, the I was impressed by the Paul Stanley. I well, mean, I, I, I've I've heard the Gene before, Gene <laughs> Simmons from Kiss. All right, okay, so those are some famous names of people that did uh, disco albums. Let us not forget Ethel Merman, the Ethel Merman disco album. I, I was, did know was that she done. did that. Yes. How about Mickey Mouse disco? Of course. And Sesame Street Fever. Well, and, and that one I do remember <laughs> quite well. 
So everybody was on board. You know, you had bands out there like the Village People. Um, so what I think was funny is when I watched, um, you know, and I talked about Wilson Peckett. I didn't talk about Casey and the Sunshine Band or the Bee Gees. Well, I did talk about the Bee Gees, the fact that they formed their own band. Casey and the Sunshine Band, uh, I, I highly recommend that you watch old YouTube, cl YouTube clips of them as well because they were meant to be a live band. And Casey even said, well, yeah, we kind of got lumped into disco, which is what Barry Gibb also said. We kind of got lumped into disco, but we were, we were a live band. And, and watch it sometime because it's hard not to watch Casey and the Sunshine Band perform and not kind of like find yourself bopping your head and tapping your feet to it because it's very infectious. It's a very infectious sound. So here's kind of the issue that I have with with when you try to label something too tightly. You know, I didn't necessarily think Casey and the Sunshine Band were disco band. And so where do you draw those lines at? If you're going to be very strict about it, disco music basically is 1977 through 1979, and then it, it ends. But there's music that comes out a little bit later. You know, you, you talk about Queens, another one bites the dust. I don't know. If I would say it's disco. You say it's disco. It's it's kind of dance music. How about you know KC comes up with Baby Give It Up? Uh, you know, a couple of years later, which sounds every bit as danceable as you know, Shake Your Booty. Right. It, it, what's the difference between the two? I, I, other than at one time it was called disco, the next time it's called dance music. But if, you, if you've never really watched uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band perform, I highly recommend that you YouTube it. They are fun. They're fun to watch. It's a, it's a big band, very diverse. You have people of all different types of races, ages, instruments. Uh, you know, Casey at one point, because he, he dances behind his keyboard. He plays the keyboard while he's singing. But there's times where he'll get away from the keyboard, and he goes over and he dances with the horn section. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. So I, I, again, you know, I, I said if you take things away, if you want to go back and check out things, check out Casey and the Sunshine Band because, uh, as a live performing band, they're really somebody that you have to. And and he said you know, his influence was Sly and the Family Stone, which I failed to mention earlier, and I, I'm sorry I didn't because they were uh, they were part of that kind of that southern that Florida type sound that sort of evolve from from where the Bee Gees and Casey and Sunshine Band came from, where it's it's got a lot of lot of sound to it, a lot of a lot of members up on stage, but they're all dancing and having a good time. So it's speaking of which, do you have Earth, Wind and Fire on your list anywhere? I had mentioned Earth I was going to talk about them uh when we talked about the decline of uh disco, but yeah, go ahead because that, well, that's another band that's going to be very similar to Casey and the yes. Sunshine Band. I, I you know, I, I've gone back and I've I've seen some of these documentaries on disco, and they put Earth, Wind, and Fire in there. And I, to me, they're not a disco band. And all right, so maybe they they might have had one album that had some more disco producing production values uh, on there, but they're you know they're a funk band. They're they're a soul band. They're, they're their rhythm and blues it's like all these other things you talked about sure you could dance to it but i i don't know that i would say they're a disco band and the commodores i would put with earth within fire as well same type same type of sound same type of music but yet some of their songs they got because i guess because they got played at discos right then they got they were told that they were disco songs but they certainly uh they were true to their sound and like you said great live bands like casey and the sunshine band earth wind and fire the commodores you know those guys could play in this you know in this room 
uh, let alone in a in a stadium or whatever. Mm-hmm. They were they were just as good no matter where they went. They didn't need to hit play to be able to do a concert for somebody. Right. So, okay. So disco right now at, at this point in our story is is pretty much taken over pop culture in the United States of America. I would say, uh, but yet there's there's a kind of a growing sentiment of people that are kind of getting sick of the disco, I guess you would say, persona. Why would you say that might be the case? Well, you know, I, I watched a, a documentary on the um, disco demolition night in Chicago. And if, if you take that perspective, it was a rock DJ who had lost his job at a station that switched over to disco. And he was a rock and roller. And, he, it, it, you, you know, you talk about disco maybe being some of the on the coast and it's in, in the major cities. You, you kind of had to have that disco tech for it to be, you know, super popular. In the Midwest, it's still, for the most part, rock and roll. And they, it, it, it clashed because it became so popular. Not only did you have artists, like you talk about Rod Stewart, who was, who was a rock artist, the Rolling Stones, uh, Kiss. I mean, the, who would have thought that these artists would have come out with anything that's disco influence? If, if you're, and on top of that, like I said, with this DJ who is having an entire station change their format over to disco. So if you are into the, to the, the, the rock music, which was really big back in the 70s and the mid 70s and in the 60s, you're upset that this, you're, you're kind of, you're annoyed that this is taking over. And I wish I could remember who it was that made the comment that they just got sick and tired of hearing the Bee Gees on like three times an hour because they were that popular on in, in the charts. It, and, and and here's where I'll take issue with with a lot of people that want to say that it was racial. The you know you hear the homophobic thing thrown out there. I, I I don't I don't buy that by and large. I'm not saying that there wasn't some of that, but I, I think it's too much of it sounded the same. There, you talk about that that kind of orchestral Philadelphia kind of sound that got that got dated very quickly. Mm-hmm. It, when when it it's not that sound, when it's more of the of the funk sound, that transitions quite easily into the eighties. You know, as you said with Rick James, he becomes bigger when he moves into the eighties. There's so many of the artists that I really liked, like the Gap Band, that became much more of a funk-based band that would have a year prior to that in 1979 would have been considered a disco band, but you put them out in 1980 with Burn the Rubber, which was the song they had at that time, which is, if you listen to that, it, it's going to be hard to to say that that would not have been played at the clubs sure. a year earlier. However, it doesn't have that slick, polished sound, kind of bringing it back to what you were talking about earlier. At the beginning... It might have the disco might have had more of the, you know, what Casey and the Sunshine Band they're talking about. You know, some of the, the the rhythms that would have been happening down there in Miami, that kind of got taken over by the producers, and it, it happens all the time. So I think it's it's a case that it was too popular, too many people tried to do it. It became overproduced, and it started to just sound the same. When I watched the uh, documentary on the Bee Gees, and they talked about July twelfth, nineteen seventy nine which was Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park in, in Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, uh, The Bee Gees, at that moment, were performing a concert in Los Angeles 
as part of their tour. They just started their tour, so they've done they had done a few dates. And they're walking off stage and they're like talking into the camera as like this is the culmination of their careers, you know, this is great. You can't we're, we're so looking forward to the uh, you know, the tour coming up and it was, you know, it was a sold out stadium. I think it was a Dodger Stadium. Meanwhile, in Chicago, you have this kind of slowly percolating group of people that are like, uh, you know, being tired of listening to the same type of music all the time. And you look at, there, there are certain points in music history where music kind of gets turned on its ear. And you could almost look at July 12th, 1979 as when disco got turned on its ear. Uh, 1992 grunge music nirvana kind of turned music on its ear uh elvis presley turned music on you know it's like there's moments the beatles turned music to on its ear where there were these kind of these poignant moments in time where uh music kind of takes an overnight change all right so you, you talk about this incident that happens at kineski and the idea is it's, it's it was a promotion put on by the radio station where the, the DJ, his whole shtick was when he came to this new station, he hated disco and he would have these events around the city where he was uh, dressed up uh, like in military, you know, he'd wear a helmet, he'd drive around a Jeep and he had his little army and they're going to like destroy disco. That that was the whole thing. So the, the game at Comiskey Park was, it was a scheduled doubleheader. Correct. With the and, uh, Tigers. And uh, demolition night was uh, scheduled uh, in between games and they thought they'd be lucky if 5,000 people showed up yeah so as it turns out it was they had to turn people away right for a stadium that held not quite 60,000 and they put all these they put a huge pile of disco albums out well, in center field if, if you showed up the ticket was a dollar <laughs> if you brought the a, a disco album right so people bring these albums they make a big pile out in center field and then they detonate it and it becomes, a, I wouldn't say a riot, but it becomes like a mob scene where people are just all over the place. Yeah, they rush the field. They, they rush the field, and it's so bad that, they ha- that, the, um, that the White Sox have to forfeit the second game. They couldn't play the second game because there was so much medlam go- or, you know, bedlam going on uh, out, on the, out on the baseball field. It's they, the they- last forfeit in the American League. Is that really? It is, is that correct. Right? There's not been a forfeit since then. Wow. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. So on one side in, in, in Los Angeles, you're having the Bee Gees, you know, uh, it's just starting their tour. Everything's going great. Meanwhile, middle America in Chicago, um, the anti-disco voice is now starting to be heard. You know, and it's, but you had to have an alternative. It's not that they just hated it. There was other things that were happening. So you, you, you talk about, you know, the Beatles became an alternative to things that sounded the same. Nirvana was the alternative to the to to the the pop metal music, which was all the same at the time. New wave was really starting up, so you would have bands that might have produced some disco music, like Blondie. They had already kind of changed their sound, and they're coming out, and and they're kind of part of that new wave music. In a few months, The Knack comes out, mm-hmm. and they become the biggest band of 1979, and in a way. The knack was to disco music what Nirvana eventually became to now what's called hair metal music. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, the knack had the song My Sharona. So I had the date, July 12, 1979. <clears throat> so I'm just looking at disco songs in the top 10. 
Number one, Bad Girls by Donna Summer. Number two, Ring My Bell by Anita Ward. Number three, Hot Stuff Donna Summer. Number six, well, you know, we said Earth, Wind, and Fire, Boogie Wonderland. Uh, that had the emotions in it. That was, it was a dance song. Sure. Debatable whether or not you want to call it disco or not. Number seven, Pure Disco, Making It by David Naughton. It's a good song. It's a good song. <laughs> I like that song. It was a horrible TV show. Yeah. That was, there was a TV show called Making It. He was the star. He sang. Uh, the song did much better than the show did, but it was a catchy song. Yeah, right? it's, it's still good. All right. And then uh, number nine, Shine a Little Love by ELO. Uh, it was one of their more uh, uh, disco or this yeah. disco-y songs that they did. All right. Two months later, The Knack is number one with My Sharona, and you kind of see the charts being turned on its ear. And the the Knack got credited for kind of transforming music at that time because even though the Knack didn't go on to have much of a career after that, that was their one hit song. Well, the the, the, the first album was kind of a phenomenon. There's like three or four hits off that off their first album. Um, but they uh, it kind of kind of cleared the path for rock and roll, particularly that West Coast and new wave sound. So you had the new wave, the new romantic period coming from from Europe. Sure. You had that West Coast sound coming. Uh, you know, the Knack, was, they were from California. Uh, the Go-Go's were from California. They would end up, uh, you know, becoming big. So there were other influence that eventually came in and sort of took over. And But I think people were just kind of tired of that disco sound. They were tired of listening to, uh, you know, Sesame Street Disco and Ethel Merman. Yeah, when, a, when Ethel Merman makes a disco record, it, it's... It's probably over. I hope we don't get sued by the Ethel Merman estate um, because there's nothing against Ethel Merman. She had a wonderful career, but when you're when you, somebody who sang standards back in the 1940s and 1950s, and now she's coming out with a disco album, uh, you know, you kind of you kind of reach the breaking I, point. I, actually, I think America did. I went back and I listened to "There's No Business Like Show Business" to the, the disco the disco version. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's funny. Yeah. I, there was a song out. I think it was Walter Egan that did a fifth of Beethoven. That was that was an early disco song. There was no lyrics to it. Okay, it was where they took yeah. It's where they took you know Beethoven's fifth and and basically built a disco sound. Yeah, that was that was a roller skating song. It was it was a hit song, and that was kind of a few years before that. Now you're now you're four years into it, and you're kind of tired of hearing the same stuff over and over again. And that happens with music when when the record companies start oh, yeah. to get involved. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. You, you, they start to get all right. Uh, we got to get the next BGS. We got we got to get the. They start they start taking over, and then they want to saturate. Think of the late nineties and boy bands. You know, you, you went from In uh, Sync and the Backstreet Boys, and then all of a sudden now you got ninety eight degrees. Mm-hmm. Now you got O Town. It's like it started to get the point. Yeah, okay, people, enough is enough. Right. right, and I think that's what happened with America in the 1980s. And plus, uh, with Ronald Reagan being elected president, um, I think the country was looking to just kind of take a step out of where they were in the 70s and start fresh in, in the 80s. No matter what that type of music was going to be, I think that was going to happen. It, you know, somebody that rails against uh, you know the demise of disco is Nile Rodgers. You know, the, the the great songwriter, you know, guitarist, producer. Which I don't quite understand why he rails against it, because he changed with the times, and he still was making dance music. You know, we talked about the work he did with David Bowie on "Let's Dance." I, you know, it was it could it have been a disco album? 
it, it you know a couple of years early he would have he would have tweaked it because I heard him say that he would have gone for a slightly different sound, but the essence is still there. It just it doesn't have that extra little overproduced sound. And you know, you know, you talk about the midnight special. So I watched a, a clip by Taste of Honey. Remember Taste of yeah, Honey? Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, yeah, I watched that. Clip. Uh, you know that uh, boogie oogie oogie. Yep. A good song, and you know, the, you know, really talented. You know that I. I totally forgot that they played their own instruments. Yeah, the, yeah. the girls were. I mean, the bass. The, the, the bass line was, in that the lead is really, singer's the the bass player. Yeah, I mean, it's really good. Yeah, and you know the fact she does it live on there is pretty incredible. So, but in the front row, or the front two or three rows, they had these people disco dancing, and it was a joke. I mean, it's so it it was so obvious that they walked in there with their choreographed moves already decided how they were going to dance. They didn't let the music move them. You know, you go you about five rows back. You saw people kind of moving, moving to the music, kind of bopping up and down as you and I would have done at a concert. Right. And that's more natural where I think that was an example of, uh, to me, that it, it was so unnecessary what they were doing. It was, uh, they, especially there was this, there's this one guy in the video, you probably know which guy I'm talking about. And he is really playing up the camera and he is really doing the Travolta moves. And it's, he's kind of taken away from the artist. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, Kind of like when when you're watching those halftime uh, concerts that they now do for some reason at the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and then they bring in those paid people to sit there and like sl- you know, smile and clap, and it's like right. you don't really have to do that, right? right? Uh, and but that's exactly what I, I thought the same thing. You watch it's like you don't have to pay people to come in and dance supposedly spontaneously right. uh, when you provide a like a roped off area for them to do so and they're spinning around and he's i think he might even have done the travolta point at one point at one time yeah no i it, it's a good point and i think for for americans they were looking they were looking to kind of move on to the next thing and unfortunately for bands like the bee gees uh it hurt them big time, you know, as successful as they were. And they were the biggest of the big, you know, the Bee Gees and Donna Summer arguably were, um, you know, the two biggest acts in what was considered that disco genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disc, uh, the Bee Gees, the backlash against them was severe. Uh, they almost went into hiding for a couple of years and they couldn't even, they still made music, but they made more of a name for themselves in the eighties as, as producers more so than they did as performers. And thank goodness that they were such good songwriters because they end up writing a ton of hits after the 70s. But, uh, you know, here here you, you kind of feel sorry for guys who uh, were so good at what they did that people hated them for it. Oh, they were hated. And uh, radio stations would actually go out of their way and say, we're not playing the BGs today. <laughs> you know, it was like no BG Thursday or no BG weekend. Yeah. And I, that part I remember. Because they did that around here. Yeah, the pendulum doesn't need to swing that far, and yeah. and, and that it unfortunately, the, I think that's kind of where you know somebody like Anah Rogers might have issues with that, and he thinks that it you know there there's other things going on you know that caused it, you know other than just the music because there was such a backlash that you know people hate it. But even Nile Rogers, you know, so he he writes the song you know with his partner Bernard Edwards was she good times, big big disco hit. But then it becomes the first big rap song. And they, they literally, you know, take it for Rapper's Delight for Sugar Hill Gang. And that's not disco, but mm-hmm. it's still the same beat. But it doesn't have that that orchestral sound to it. Right. Exactly. And um, so that kind of gets to my next point. Um, 
Were you a fan? Would you, if you look back on a Sean, would you consider yourself a fan of disco or a detractor? Then or now? Now. You know, the I, I can appreciate some of the of of the music. I'd say a little slightly more of a detractor. Although, you know, doing some of the research for this podcast, it made me appreciate it a little bit more because I found artists other than the big names like the Bee Gees. You know, I found. Uh, you know, Taste of Honey. Mm-hmm. You know, and I totally forgot about them, and and they it kind of popped up as a recommendation, and and I was like, I'm so glad I kind of rediscovered them. I I would say that I would I'm in favor of the music. Yeah, because we were that's too, a good point. We yeah. were too young. We were too young to be a part of the culture. I I I, I am a huge detractor against kind of what the club represented. I you know I I am not a fan of everything Studio Fifty Four stood for. Right. And so, but the, this, the seventies, and I think it's fair to say, not necessarily call it disco music, but call it seventies music, because there's a little bit more of a commonality and a connection there from genre to genre. So like you said, earth, wind and fire, not necessarily disco, but it's certainly seventies. I I think that's a fair statement, but there's a lot of different types of music in seventies music, but I'd say the music itself that was, that was, um, you know, called disco. I'm a big fan of it. Disco Inferno. Is, by the tramps is is the best song off that album and um off the, off the Saturday Night fever soundtrack you know which of course we talked about featured the the bgs for the most part but disco inferno by the tramps outside of the word disco if you take that out of there that fits in with anything you heard in the mid 70s you know with the oj's or you know any of those uh you know artists that would that would have been big in the early to mid 70s when when I I mentioned the fact that I have been a wedding DJ for 26 years, and when you look, some, every once in a while, people will want to sort of take a step back into time, and of all the decades previously, whether it's 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, the 70s, if you do continuous music strictly from the 1970s, you have a you have a better blend of music, I think, from start to finish. Even more so than say even Motown of the '60s, or definitely the '80s. The '80s there there were dance songs, but nothing like the '70s. The '70s music was designed to dance to. Sure. And I think uh, if you're looking for fun music, uh, stuff that'll keep you moving, stuff that has uh, all the elements that you need to have a good time out on the dance floor, to me that's '70s music. So I would say when you're looking at disco itself. The music, I'm a huge fan of. Sure, the the clothes, no, uh, you know the the disco, you know that that polyester uniform that you know was typical, which even the people that went to Studio Fifty Four, which I just railed against, they thought that was a joke as well. So you know Steve Rebell, who was one of the owners of Studio Fifty Four, he used to call those the Bridge and Tunnel people. Yep, bridge and Tunnel, yeah. And it was a joke. So you came, you know, you went over to. Uh, to go to the club and you had to come over from the, the, you know, the outskirts of New York and cross the bridges or the tunnels to get there. They knew who you were. And in a way, when, when I'm, when I watched Saturday Night Fever and, and I, and I heard Rebel talk about that, I thought about the Jersey Shore. Okay. You know, that's kind of the characters that you would see, you know, that we've seen kind of played out on the Jersey Shore, you know, the Staten Island type people. They, they might not uh, necessarily be uh, people that, had as, as much class. They weren't the upper crust. They they 
went went like to go out club and like to party, and that's kind of what's portrayed in Saturday Night Fever. But that, I mean, with Studio Fifty Four, it was definitely going for a different element. Okay. Okay, so music-wise, we're both. I would say we were both in favor sure. of, of that music. Um, Not well, the Sesame Street one, though. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll pass or Ethel. You know, we'll pass on that. So, what is you know what is the lasting legacy of of disco music? And I think uh, you know I touched on it with uh, a few of the steps when, when I mentioned that going to uh, recorded sound for nightclubbers, I think it still holds true to this day. You're going to go to any uh, restaurant or bar or whatever. You're going to hear more DJs playing than you're going to hear live bands playing I- anymore because it's cheaper yeah. and, and you can get more of a variety of music. That is that is definitely has a direct connection to the discotheque and disco music. Okay. Right? The sound and the lighting. Sound and lighting is now as important as whatever music that you're playing. You know, in addition, when I would... DJ uh, wedding receptions, uh, you know, I can't just go up there with with tiny little speakers that don't sound well. I have to go there with my best with my best speakers. Sometimes I have to do more than just a couple if the room's big enough, or if, you know, if it's too big for two. Yeah, you have to. The sound has to accommodate the uh, you know the taste or the the people have an expectation now as far as how music should sound. You can't just you know plop down a little twelve inch uh, PA system like you may have been able to do 50 or 60 years ago. And then your continuous music, your dual turntables. Uh, huge influence in terms of keeping the party going. But not only that, in New York City, look at the dual turntable. All right, now you got these guys that are starting to get creative with these turntables. Maybe if I do a wiggy wiggy and, and, and scratch a little bit, mm-hmm. I can now take a song and make something completely different. Thus, the evolution of hip-hop music uh, started out as rap, but now hip-hop music. That got to start directly from the studio and the discotheques. That, that is a direct connection from disco to hip-hop. As you said, Rapper's Delight sure. comes off of a disco song. It's, it's literally putting good times on, on one turntable and starting to rap over it, you know, and, and you know, taking a, a, just taking the beat you know the, the the main beat to uh to good times and it it is yeah with without disco you don't end up getting hip-hop okay well we're gonna wrap things up here we've been talking a long time about disco and and if you hung in with us for this particular episode you're probably saying all right end it already so um hopefully you learned a lot about sort of where disco came from maybe you're not as offended when you hear the word disco as you have been in the past because like I said, disco is a very polarizing word. People either love it or hate it, but I think you can't uh, can't deny, if you're a Gen Xer, I think you probably grew up liking the music. You might not. Um, and maybe we'll put up a, a poll uh, for to see if you were a fan, if you're a lover, or if you're a lover or a hater. or dis- As long music. as you split out the music from you know, the, the fashion. And I, I just don't think that, you know, at, at our age that, you know, the, the whole, the club was certainly part of it. But, you know, when you're a little kid and, and, you know, you know I joke about it, but Sesame Street's coming out with the disco album. I mean, that's obviously they thought the kids were into it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like I said, you know, check it out. Hopefully you enjoyed um, our historical look at uh, the history of disco music. Uh, you know, a lot of it, a lot of rock and roll elements and, 
you're talking going back 70 years we went just went back so hopefully you're able to learn a little bit about disco and maybe where it came from and see some of the disco influences that came out of it and into even today's music and uh you know our culture Sure. Absolutely. I I would agree with that. And who knows, maybe it'll give us all a new perspective on disco. We'll go back and check it out. Yep. And check them out on YouTube. Again, I recommended a number of groups. So uh, check them out on YouTube. Like I said, uh, worth the watch, in my opinion. So, all right. The Steps of Disco is in the books, episode number five for for Gen X Playback. Uh, Sean, any thoughts about what you're going to do with uh, the next topic oh i know what we're going to do with the next topic okay so you know we we go back to the 70s and you know we we you know i, I thought what, what how, how can we like totally change course and not be stuck in the 70s anymore i thought all right we're going to go to the middle of the greatest decade for the the greatest generation ever we're going to go right to the 80s and arguably the best movie that was out there 16 candles we're going to do a deep dive into 16 candles awesome all right. Can't wait for it. Uh, hopefully you'll tune in as well. So again, we thank you very much for listening to Gen X Playback. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we hope you have a great week. We will talk to you next time. And we're going to talk about the movie 16 Candles. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you soon. See ya.